This is Jessica Ortner, and I'll soon be joined by my brother Nick. Our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going through a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. And we are here with episode nine. Welcome, Nick. Hey, Jess. What's going on? Uh, nothing. The big question is what's going on with you because you have a new member in your family. I sure do. Little June Everly Ortner is actually, as we speak, I'm multitasking. She's on my chest and a little snuggly. She's asleep for now. Um, we'll see if we can get a little cry during the podcast. And if you find me just randomly singing a nursery rhyme or uh, <laughs> shushing. If I shush the mic, it's not at the listener. Right. Not- well, let's let's talk about that for a second because you walk around with this little this little speaker that makes um, the sound of a vacuum or a hairdryer. Well, it has multiple choices. There's a hairdryer, there's a vacuum, there's a womb sound, there's soft rain, and uh, I got this little speaker, and it's just white noise. It just... Puts her to sleep. It's pretty magical. So how many days old is she now? Uh, so let's see. Saturday, we're recording this on Wednesday. She was three weeks old on Saturday. So she's going to be a month old this Saturday. That is crazy. That is crazy. And this is your first. So this is my first. So what's it feel like to be a dad? I mean, I kind of love it. I really do. I can uh, tell. Um, I mean, I've you know I've always... You, you could see me being a good dad, right? Yeah. No, no, I know. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> no, it's true. I always feel like you and Alex, our other brother, I always felt like you guys both had a dad quality. Had, had what it takes. Had, you had what it takes, yeah. So, yeah, I'm having a great time with it. I mean, it's, you know, it's so, such a gift to be able to work from home. I have a home office, and uh, I just, I can't imagine... You know, most, I mean, most dads can maybe take a week off of work and then they're back and then they're gone for eight hours. And I can't imagine what my wife, Brenna, it's hard enough as it is, but not having help and uh, my support there. So it's pretty great that we can uh, set our own schedules and I can take her and record a podcast when she's on me. I'm also standing up at my standing treadmill desk, which is what I where I normally work. And even before June, I would work and walk on this thing just to not sit all day and get some exercise. And now it comes in extra handy because she likes the movement. She doesn't like to stay still, as most newborns don't, because they've just spent nine months in a belly where they were jostled and moved and there was loud noise, and then that was what was relaxing for them. Yeah. So uh, so I got it's, all the all the tricks. In it's play. funny when we're chatting, and I won't even know that she's she's on you because you're always carrying her around in that sling, and suddenly I'll hear her cry, and you'll be yeah. like, oh, sorry, I stopped moving. Exactly. And you, go, and you go back to doing squats. Exactly. Yeah, doing squats. My my quads and calves are going to look amazing by the end of the summer yeah. after thousands of squats a day. She also likes, like, the little drop. You know? So I got I got all the tricks, but, I mean, what, what a gift. She's the cutest. I'm really, really enjoying it. And, she's uh, so teeny tiny. She doesn't eat. She, she looks so like a little tiny. monkey. I know. She's so teeny tiny. They are tiny. And, you know, Jess, we obviously have three other uh, nieces and nephews, Malachi, Lucas, and Olivia. And we were together this past weekend and saw them, and they look like giants compared to her. I know. There's one picture of Olivia touching June's head. Maybe we'll post it. It's okay with you. It's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. 
and we'll put we'll put some pictures of June up on on the notes. So that's um, thetapplingsolution.com forward slash notes. So very exciting. More to come. Maybe we'll do some uh, podcast episodes on tapping for parenting. And, and that'll uh, be over. That'll be over on our Tapping Solution podcast. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So people can check that out. Well, Nick, congratulations again. It's so Thank exciting. You. Wait, how does it feel to be an aunt? I mean, I know it's the fourth time that you're an aunt, so it's not like the first time. But uh, this is the first with Brennan and I, who, as some people know, is your best friend growing up. It's uh, so. it's crazy. It's crazy that my best friend since middle school ended up marrying my brother, and this is the closest thing to me having children with Brenna, which I'm yeah, sure yeah. when we were little would get us really excited if someone told us one day. Um, you know, like it, I mean, it, it just it's crazy. And and what was so amazing was seeing Brenna as a mom. Yeah. You know, like the as you know, obviously the you told me that the labor was very long. And when the first time I spoke to her, I was almost just as moved to see Brenna as a mom as to see June. It was like both those images really impacted me and I began to cry. And what was so incredible was it was such a long labor, but Brenna said, I asked Brenna, I was like, how does it feel? How do you feel? And I expected her to be like, I'm tired. Like it was brutal, but no, she was like, she said it was one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had and I learned so much about myself and she was just glowing and I'll never forget it and it wasn't I actually posted pictures on my Facebook because I wasn't I was still in California um when when June was born so it was over FaceTime that I was talking to Brenna and you know I said that she just looked like an angel with a cherub in her arms I mean she Uh just looked so happy and beautiful and that image, you know, Brenna and I bought training bras together. I, mean, I remember going to the big mall, like you know, we went through puberty together. We went through so much together. We've, we, I've known every single boyfriend she's had. She's known that every boyfriend I've had. We've been through so much, and so um, to see her as a mom and to also know that her baby is my is my niece. It was so beautiful. It was incredible. I love it. Yeah, love it was so more to come. More to come. So that's the big news. And we have a great interview in store. I interviewed Robert Holden, which um, he is English. He's a British psychologist, author and broadcaster. And he is known as Britain's foremost expert on happiness. So it was very fitting to have him on our podcast, Adventures in Happiness. Um, what else should I say about it? So he has 10 well, best-selling he's a ha- books. He's a happy guy. Which he's you, happy- better, you, you better be if you're the expert on happiness. But right. I... I love Robert. I've gotten to spend some time with him. And now I know we say that about every guest. Oh, I love, but that's why we have him as guests. That's why we invite them. <laughs> because we love them. But Robert is such a sweet guy. He actually interviewed me for the Hay House World Summit. And uh, we had a great interview together. So I, he's just a, such a sweet guy. And I'm excited to listen to this. You know, it's cool. Like we, So we talked about self love and happiness. I also love to hear a man talk about self love. And. Yeah. Because, you know, I think it's a topic, self-love, that a lot of people poo-poo or they're a little bit yeah. uncomfortable with. And so to have him talk about it was really fascinating. I do want to mention that he is the author of 10 books, including Happiness Now, Be Happy, Success, Intelligence, and this is my favorite title, Shift Happens. I love it. So anything else to say about him before we jump in? No. Uh, let's listen in to Robert. And as always, let us know on Facebook, any other guests that you'd like to see, and uh and if you liked it, yeah, any exactly. aha moments, we'd love to hear from you. 
Nick, again, congrats, I'm sure, through within the next few episodes, we'll have more updates on June. And people can check out pictures, tappingsolution.com forward slash notes. Let's go into the interview. It's good, thank you. How are you going? I'm doing great. I'm so excited you're on the show. <laughs> thank you. It's really, I'm pleased to be doing it with you. So it's audio only, although I do love to see your face and that cute little drawing of, what is it, a snowman? What's behind you? Let's see. The snowman is the Buddha. Th- that's the Buddha. Okay. <laughs> I, like that, I like that it's a snowman. Though. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. I see. Wait. No, you're seeing the snowman. Oh, my God. Now, let's think. This is Bo. That's my daughter, Bo, and I think it's the Eggman. Oh, it's the Eggman. Oh, yes. Okay, the Buddha's next to. I thought your daughter was drawing Buddha with a top hat. You are so, that is so great and so strange of me to think that you would think the Buddha is a snowman. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. These get put up almost like every other day, you know, so I have to, like, stay really current. Right, so you get your kids draw pictures and then you have to swap them out. Just drop them over to me, you know, and like Bo is eight and she's very, you know, she's just in this great creative flow, you know, where like she came up to me, this was a couple of weeks ago, she said, Daddy, I'm writing poems, would you like to buy one? (laughs) Oh, so she's creative and she's an entrepreneur, I love that. No more more starving artist mentality. (laughs) How good is that? That's amazing. That's amazing. So you sound great. I see you don't have headphones on. So if there's anything on your computer that can make noise like your email. Yeah. I'm going to switch off. I've switched off my, um, great. I have switched off my phones. And you can turn the video off. It'll probably have a better connection. Okay. So this is a very casual show. I just start recording and we have a fun conversation. So How good is that? It's very and easy. How can I object to that? I mean- <laughs> You know. So I I just got back from the West Coast, and so I had to fly from uh, I flew from Long Beach, California, to JFK. So I had like a, a nice kind almost five and a half hour plane ride, and I started and I finished your book with Louise Hay. Congratulations! It's an amazing Thanks. book. And I had to ask the flight attendant if I could borrow his pen because there were so many things I wanted to underline. So I have this book in front of me with all these marks and notes all around. Um, But where I actually wanted to start, before we go into the book, where I wanted to start the conversation is, Robert, so you are known as Britain's foremost expert on happiness. My podcast is called Adventures in Happiness. So I want to hear about your thoughts around happiness. What do you think causes someone to stop in their life and feel like they're actually happy? Well, maybe I could take you, Jessica, all the way back to when I met my first spiritual mentor. Please. Uh, His name is Avanti, Avanti Kumar. And I met him when I was 18 years old. And we were on the same course together, actually. We were studying a course called Communications, and it was a modular program um, based around psychology, philosophy, sociology, linguistics, media. It was one of those great programs where you could sort of pick and choose. Mm. And Avanti was in the same class as me. He sat at the back of the class. He was always the 
uh, last one into class and the first one out. And he was a bit different to the rest of us. The, the uh, lecturers referred to Avanti as a mature student uh, because Avanti was, I think, maybe 24 years old and we were all 18 years old. So to us, he was very mature. Um, almost ancient, you might say. <laughs> At 24. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And um, But he absolutely, from the first moment I saw him, I was intrigued by him, but I didn't say anything to him. He was really quite shy. He kept himself to himself. And it was several weeks into term after I had actually said hello to everybody on the program and, and made pretty good friends with everyone. He was the one person I still hadn't spoken to and most of us hadn't spoken to. Anyway, eventually I got a chance to catch up with him one day. And um, just to give you an idea of what a mysterious man he is, uh, I remember I ran up to him after class. Remember, he was the first one out the door, so he was off already. I had to run after him managed to tap him on the shoulder and I I um then said hi Avanti I'm I'm Robert I just thought I'd say hi and and then I said something like you know what made you choose this course and he said and he paused for a moment and then he said I came to meet you yeah. and that's all he said I came to meet you and I remember saying to him Thank you very much. That's very kind. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I'll look forward to seeing you around. Anyway, Avanti was the man who I discovered later was into metaphysics, into philosophy, was a yogi, would meditate for up to eight hours a day. And he was the one who introduced me to the Gita and the Upanishads and the Dhammapada and the autobiography of a yogi, and all the great spiritual classics. And we would have conversations about life and happiness and truth and girlfriends and all, all the most important things you could ever have a conversation about. And he was the one who really encouraged me to examine happiness in a certain way. One day we were having a conversation over a cup of coffee and he said to me, I will give you the secret to happiness if you'd like. And of course I said, well, yes, I'd like the secret to happiness. And he said, the secret to happiness is to understand that you are already happy. Now, Jessica, when he said that, it sounded great, but obviously, you know, I just said, that sounds amazing. How comes I don't feel it? Why don't I feel happier then? And he said, it's because we are too obsessed with the search for happiness to really know what true happiness is. But that starting point, the idea that we are already happy was the beginning of a wonderful inquiry for me. And, and I, would, I would say, Jessica, for me, that, that still remains the key to happiness, that actually our soul the essence of who we are is already happy. It's our ego, our self-image that's so busy searching for happiness that it overlooks the fact that the soul is already happy. So that's the starting point. And I can see that 
I can see the extreme of that for those who are into personal development and and growth like I am. I know that at one point in my life I realized, oh, I'm not into self-development, I'm into self-punishment. I was taking these books about how to live a better life and just using them as another tool to criticize myself for not being further along and the judgments that I had. So do you find that people who are interested in this conversation do you see that? Do you see this this kind of shadow side when it comes to the search of happiness as we obsess over achieving it so much that we never give ourselves a chance to feel it? Absolutely. There is a, a shadow to it. And um, I, I like the way you put it, the difference between sort of, you know, self-development and self-punishment. The One of the distinctions that I made um, in a book called Happiness Now, and then also in particular in a book called Shift Happens, was the distinction between self-improvement and self-acceptance. Um, I felt that personally in my life, uh, when I really began to engage on the spiritual journey, it was a path of self-improvement. Even though, you know, Advanti had told me that the soul is already happy, I didn't really hear it in the way that I've heard it since, I really embarked on this journey of self-improvement. And what I came to realize is that actually no amount of self-improvement can make up for any lack of self-acceptance. The, the self that we are trying to improve is a self that doesn't it's like we're trying to improve ourselves before we even had a chance to get to know ourselves. And actually, the greatest joy, I think, is in being willing to accept ourselves. Now, on one level, that means literally accepting the possibility that there's nothing wrong with the truth of who we are. And that's radical because for most of us, it's like, well, we think, of course, there must be something wrong with us. And that's why we're dedicated to self-improvement. The problem is, is that self-improvement begins with a judgment. And unfortunately, any paradigm, any mindset that you, the starting point is always the finishing point. So if you start with a judgment and you feel like you have to improve yourself, you're only going to ever end up feeling like there's still more self-improvement to do. So Jessica... I, I really feel it's so important to be able to recognize this distinction between self-improvement um, and self-acceptance. It's one of the reasons why when I started to explore um, EFT, I was so uh, thrilled, delighted, uh, surprised that it was that self-acceptance was such a core part of the philosophy of the work. Yes, absolutely. And when I teach people tapping or EFT and I begin to introduce this concept of starting the tapping by saying, even though I have this problem, I love and accept myself, that tends to be one of the hardest things to teach. So even if people can understand the tapping, they understand the meridian points, they start to see the research, the moment I say that, that's when a lot of people look at me and they think, okay, this just got weird. It's like tapping doesn't seem weird to them, but saying I accept myself seems very strange. 
Because we grew up in a, in a society that teaches us that if we accept things, it means that we're giving up. And in order to achieve, we need to fight. So tell us about the, sh- the shift of the mentality and what would you say to someone who hears this idea of accepting themselves but is so hesitant because they're thinking, Robert, but I really want to change. I don't want to accept myself because I don't feel like I'm the person I'm truly meant to be. Self-acceptance is so beautiful. Everybody should try it at least once in their lifetime just to see what it's like because most of us disregard self-acceptance due to what I call theoretical fears. One of the theoretical fears is that if I accept myself, my life won't progress, my life won't change. Uh, But it's a theoretical fear. We've never actually tried self-acceptance. We're just afraid that if we do it, as I say, we will lose momentum in the journey. We won't get there, wherever there is that we are trying to get to. So the starting point is to try it. And, you know, there are lots of ways to, to, to do this. One of my favorite ways, Jessica, is a very simple meditation. And it's a meditation um, that we actually used in chapter one of Life Loves You. Uh, the meditation is simply just to be still for a few moments and just to ask yourself, what is it like to be me when I'm not judging myself? I underlined that one and circled it and put stars around it. Yeah. Please say it again. Yeah. What is it like to be me when I'm not judging myself? Now, the request here, I would say, is try this for 15 minutes. I mean, this is, you know, 15 minutes is a significant amount of time, but I have to say that it's well worth those 15 minutes because Early on in the inquiry, there's every likelihood that you're going to feel a little disorientated because you're going to become aware that actually your self-image is made up of judgments. Your sense of self is made up of judgments, where you're good and where you're bad, where you're right and where you're wrong, where you compare yourself uh, positively against others, where you compare yourself negatively against um, others. So, Often it can be a little disorientating in the beginning, but just to take that moment where you can just, if you like, encounter that disorientation, keep breathing, stay with it. Some tapping would be brilliant, I imagine, around about now. And then just stay with this idea. What is it like to be me when I'm not judging myself? And my experience is, and this is a, a meditation I've taught in class many, many times, uh, particularly on a, on a program called Lovability, most people's first response is, I don't know. I, I've judged myself for so long, I don't even know what this is like. Now, that's just a thought because it isn't the entire truth. The truth of who you are has never judged you. So you just stay with it a little longer. And as you stay with it, you do begin to see the sunshine through the clouds, if you like, and then you begin to have this experience of what it's truly like to be you when you're not judging yourself. And it, it's, it's such a simple inquiry, Jessica, but in my experience, once you have that experience of what it's like to be you without judging yourself, all of a sudden, you don't have to 
do self-improvement on yourself anymore, or at least there's a case for it. Let's put it that way. Now there's a case for not improving yourself. Now there's a case for just being more of who you are. Mm. And that's the key. Robert, I'd love to put you on the spot here. Is there any way that you could take us through a type of meditation to help us begin to sink into this idea? Yeah, let's, well, let's do it. Let's absolutely do it. So let's take a nice deep breath. Let that in-breath be a symbol of our willingness to be receptive and open to this experience of being ourselves without the the noise of this this self-judgment. And then let the out-breath be just a symbol of our willingness to relax and release and just let go. Be nice and light in the body. So every in-breath is a symbol of our willingness to be receptive and open, and every out-breath a symbol of our willingness just to relax, release, and let go. And then if it's appropriate for you and comfortable for you to be able to close your eyes, then do that. And again, take another nice deep breath, and as you're breathing in, just begin to get a feeling for what it's like to be me when I'm not judging myself. And just let the breath be nice and easy, inhaling, exhaling at your own pace, maybe a little slower than normally. And let's just get a feeling for it. And again, what is it like to be me when I'm not judging myself? We've judged ourselves for so long in the hope that one day these judgments would make us into somehow a better person. But we have to ask ourselves, how many judgments is it going to take? We've been judging for so long and we seem to have made such little progress. Maybe the thing to do is to drop the judgments. So once again, we take a nice deep breath. This is what it's like to be me when I'm not judging myself. And as you continue to breathe nice and deeply, let's see if we can find that place in ourselves where we have never judged ourselves. Let's see if we can tune in to the essence of who we are. Let's see if we can tune into our soul, to what St. Francis of Assisi calls our eternal loveliness. What Thomas Merton the Christian mystic calls our secret beauty. We would only ever be able to see this loveliness, this beauty, if we stopped judging ourselves. So we take another nice deep breath.
and let's be wide open to making conscious contact with that place in us where we have never judged ourselves. It wouldn't even occur to us to judge ourselves. And because we're not judging ourselves, we get to see the truth of who we really are. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that, Robert. Well, thank you for the suggestion because it, it beats talking about it just it to be just to drop in there. Absolutely. And as people have just experienced, it only takes a minute or two. And I'm sure that with practice, it becomes even easier to just drop to that space uh, even faster. Yeah, because once you recognize that experience, it's so easy to call on it again. Mm. And, you know, it's a little bit like the subject of self-love. We often get asked that question, Jessica, you know, like, how do I love myself? And I think the great thing to recognize is that we are already loving ourselves. You know, the essence of who we are loves us very, very much. It's only ever loved us. Um, you know, the ego, the self-image doesn't know how to, that self doesn't know how to love us because that's the self that we created when we felt we weren't lovable. But actually, the essence of who we are loves us very, very deeply. All we have to do is to drop into that place to experience it. So in many ways, self-love isn't a verb. It's not an action. It's not another thing for the self-improvement list. It's more a relaxation and an acceptance that actually our soul cares for us very, very much and has been caring for us all along if we were willing to pay attention. Mm. One of the things that I wrote about in my book was this concept of misguided self-love. And it's the idea of when we do something that's against maybe one of our goals, like we we overeat or we procrastinate, uh, there is something in our environment that doesn't feel quite safe. So we take those actions as a way to protect ourselves. And so even though we might look at the action we're taking and we might feel very frustrated with ourselves, when you look at the core, it's really misguided self-love. It's the sense of we're always trying to do the best that we can. And if we feel like there's fear in our life, we can try to cope with that fear in a way that doesn't serve us. But the fact that we're just coping with that fear shows that there's something inside of us that wants us to survive, that loves us. And so it's about taking the conscious, becoming more conscious about our behaviors and the emotions behind our behaviors in a, from a place of compassion instead of a place of, of discipline and pushing. And I, and I see a lot of this with what you're saying is there seems to be a movement. You know, it used to be about um, love, you know, being a better person was about pushing yourself and fighting. And now we're seeing it's really about understanding and self-acceptance and compassion. Robert, when you have a moment when you don't feel like you're being compassionate towards yourself or you don't, you're not consciously experiencing that self-love, do you do something to move yourself back to that space? Well, firstly, Jessica, I really like your phrase, misguided self-love. Um, you know, that's, I think that's a really, that's a tremendous, um, it's a tremendous phrase and I can completely relate to the experience of that mm. um, in that I think 
I have often tried to love myself without really consulting love on the matter. All right. <laughs> and yes. So at some point, you know, along the way, this was really at the heart of my book, Lovability. Um, Lovability really was was um, a desire to create a class on love, the class that I wish I'd had when I was at school. And one of the things that I feel I really have learned about love is that love is intelligent and that love knows how to love us and it knows how to love everyone else too. And the key is to consult with love. And I would say that the heart of my daily spiritual practice really is to allow myself to be guided by love so that I'm not misguided uh, when I then set about loving myself, for instance. Now, that process of misguidance, I would have to say personally, has just been trial and error. There have been times when I thought I was loving myself and probably on reflection, it was it was more more an indulgence than it really was a truly loving act. Um, but I think that if you make it a habit to listen to the voice for love, which I believe is our true voice, then after a while that voice just becomes easier and easier to recognize. And because it's easy to recognize, then we can allow ourselves to be guided by that. So the starting point, I think, you know, when, when I'm not feeling great is to be able to, you know, in my daily practice, and it is a daily practice, that will be where I will ask love for the help. And often in my experience, what then happens is that I will be guided to speak to somebody about how I'm feeling. Uh, in other words, the guidance will be, don't try to handle this one on your own. Um, have a conversation with Holly, my wife. Have a conversation with my mentor, Tom, or with a good friend. You know, uh, but share it, in other words. And, and share it with somebody, <laughs> you know, somebody who's smart, somebody who's, who's got your best interests at heart. But that's normally how it works. So it's a combination, Jessica, of almost like, as I'm talking to you, I get an image of the cross, you know, the vertical guidance and then which comes from from the, from the daily practice. But then often it's that horizontal support, the social support that you get in your life from having, you know, good friends and good family around you right. and good mentors and good teachers. Now, what if you are trying to experience a self-love, you're trying to be happy, but there is a coworker that is driving you completely insane? What do you do in that situation? You know, sometimes we want to be peaceful and we want to be in this great space, but then somebody walks in and they seem like an energy vampire and they seem to drain us of our energy. What does that signify in our life when we have that experience and what can we do about it? So when somebody shows up like that for me in my life, um, again, what I what I try to do firstly is just to drop the judgment about the situation. Because once again, just like we were exploring earlier, the moment I judge myself, I'm not going to see who I am. I'm just going to see my judgments about this person that I'm looking at. You know, similarly, when I judge another person, 
really, I'm not really going to see who they are. And I'm not really going to see what this situation is about. I'm only going to see my judgments about it. So one of the first things that I will do is, you know, once I've got over myself, let's be honest, I mean, you know, I might have needed to have a good moan for a while about this. But at some point, I will, I will come round to, to my senses and I will say something. It'll be a prayer where I'm like praying to love and I'm just like, please show me the truth of this situation. Now, when I do that, normally what happens is I get some sort of an inkling as to a lesson here for me to learn um, or some sort of a gift as well. Uh, one of my sort of favorite spiritual principles is this idea that if somebody is in our life, it's because we have a gift for them and they have a gift for us. So I might start to look for where the lesson might be or where the gift might be. And in doing that, Jessica, I, I suddenly now feel much more empowered. I'm not a victim of this situation. This person who in front of me, I'm not going to call them an energy vampire. I'm not going to name them as such. Um, I'm going to be honest about what I feel, but I'm not going to name them as such. And then hopefully that way, because I'm dropping the judgments, I'm going to be shown um, a cool way to go about things. Mm, I love that. I, I was also reading um, in Life Life Loves You this idea that your relationships are often a mirror. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just how perception works, isn't it, Jessica? You know, it, it's. I think for many of us, we were brought up to believe that perception just shows us reality. But of course, what we know to be true, um, not, not just metaphorically, but scientifically, is that our perception can only ever show us uh, what fundamentally we identify with. Um, and so therefore, as it says in A Course of Miracles, which is one of my favorite books, perception is always a projection. We see things not as they are, but as we are. And, um, and so therefore, once again, if whenever we're willing to drop our judgments about something, we stand a better chance of seeing what's really going on. In fact, today, Jessica, my lesson uh, in A Course of Miracles, A Course of Miracles is made up of 365 daily lessons. The lesson today is actually encouraging us to drop judgment. And it actually makes the point at one point in, in the lesson, we're not asking you to, do, to stop doing something that you can do. We're actually asking you to stop doing something you can't do. You can't judge. None of your judgments have ever been right. They're all based on partial information. Mm. So we're just encouraging you to stop doing something that you're not very good at, i.e. <laughs> judging things. Right. All right. I love that. I want to move on to this concept of life loves you. So you have this beautiful book with Louise Hay, a real legend in the field. What does it mean to have life love us? Okay. It's a great inquiry. Let's start there. Life loves you. Beautiful, beautiful inquiry. Um, Louise's favorite affirmation, her signature affirmation, you might say, the affirmation that she often uses when she's signing books, uh, when she's signing emails, um, when she finishes a phone call or a Skype session, it's always life loves you. And I, I was really deeply intrigued by that, Jessica, for a lot of reasons. 
Um, I think one of them was because I've always been interested in this idea called basic trust. Uh, basic trust is this idea that life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. And that deep down there is a the universe underneath the periodic table of things, underneath all of those elements, underneath all of the magnesium and the chemistry and the atoms and everything else, there is this field of love that wants to support us. Now, life loves you. In my experience, Jessica, what it's really asking us to look at is, is the you bit. Um, uh, one way I describe it, it when I'm giving talks about Life Loves You is, is, you know, if you've ever been to a party and somebody across the room is waving at you, and so you wave back, and then you realize actually they weren't waving at you. You know, they were actually waving at someone else. That's like a really awkward moment. Yes. <laughs> I've been there. I, I still don't know how to style that one out. <laughs> you just pretend you're just combing your your fingers through your hair. You know, the wave turns into just a brushing your hair. I don't know. <laughs> so something like that. Well, I think life loves you is a little bit like that. When we hear the word life loves you, Life loves you. It sounds like life's waving at us, i.e. our self-image, and going, yeah, I'm going to give you everything you want. I'm going to make you abundant, and I'm going to get you that relationship you keep fantasizing about, and I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, life loves you isn't talking to that self. It's talking to the self behind that self, which is your soul, which is the essence of who you are. And I think that life loves you is really saying that life loves the self that it created, not the self you've created, not your self-image, but your essential self. And I think really when you really tune into those words, life loves you, one of the things hopefully you really feel is that actually life has never judged you. I mean, never judged you. Yeah, the, the world's full of people who have probably had a judgment about you, but life itself has never judged you. The sun and the stars, they've never judged you. You know, 80% of the life forms on this planet, they, they exist under the sea. They've never judged you. I mean, life, literally life has never judged you. And if you can let yourself feel that for a moment, I think that's an incredibly beautiful thing. And if life hasn't judged us, then it must mean that life wants us to be who we really are, not the person we're probably trying to be, but actually who we are. And we get a sense of who that person is when we stop and do a meditation like, what's it like to be me when I'm not judging myself? When we stop and instead of doing the self-punishing stuff, we genuinely get into an experience of, of self-acceptance and we allow ourselves to be more of who we really are. Mm. I remember the first time I learned how to tap and I had to say those words, I love and accept myself. Just saying those words brought up so much, uh, so many emotions and I began to cry. And I've seen this happen many times when people finally reach that space where they 
begin to say to themselves, I love and I accept myself, that that a lot of emotions come up. Why do you think it's so emotional for so many? Because we've been so unkind to ourselves for so long. Mm. And it takes such a great toll. Um, and I think the reason that we've been so unkind to ourselves is because, you know, we're afraid that that somehow we're not good enough. You know, we're afraid that on some level we're not lovable. And that's such a desperate experience to feel that we will do anything not to feel that. And we will go to the ends of the earth to try and improve ourselves and develop ourselves to make us into something more lovable. But the the cost to us of trying to do that is it's so exorbitant and it's so tiring. So I think that when we even get an inkling of what it might be like to accept ourselves, we often experience a, a, a grief, really, a grief that it has been so hard to be who we think we are. Um, a grief and also maybe even a sense of a relief that maybe this journey of self-improvement, of self-judging and self-punishing is potentially coming to an end. I mean, how wonderful would that be? Mm. You know, the chances are that we have judged ourselves more than we have judged anybody else in our life, all with a good intention of making ourselves into this better person and yet, because we have judged ourselves so much, we feel we have fallen short every step of the way. So I think at some point there is this, this great moment, a great opening in our awareness where we begin to see that maybe we're closer to home than we realize. And because we're closer to home than we realize, I mean, you know, that's worth some tears, I think. Yeah, beautifully said. Robert, I would love to um, wrap up with some just quick fire questions, just a few questions that I ask everyone. Um, and I, I vary these. I have like five that I pick from. But the first question I have for you is, can you share something in your life that in the moment seemed horrible, but in the end it turned into a big blessing? Oh, just about a thousand and one things. <laughs> we, we don't need all thousand and one, just one that pops up, but that really sticks out. Anything well, that you when think? I was, go ahead. When I was writing Life Loves You, two days before I began to write the book, I, I got a sciatica down my left leg. And that sciatica was a very, very painful experience that actually went about a week after I finished the postscript to the book. And um, I write about that in the book, but that experience of the sciatica, I think, enabled me to address, release, and heal some, you know, deep, deep unworthiness around the idea that life loves me. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. And uh, what's something that no one else would know about you unless they went to middle school with you? And I know you don't call it middle school in England, but... This is, you know, before high school when you're probably like 13 years old, 12, 13. Um, gosh, I think it's probably that I'm just such a normal boy, really. I mean, 
you know, I, I support West Ham United Football Club and every time they lose, I question the existence of God <laughs> and, and they do lose a lot. So that hurts. Um, I love to drink red wine. I collect red wine. Okay, but you, and do, you weren't, I have a you wine weren't club. doing that as a child, I hope. <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> no, but oh, that's, no. that's still interesting. So please continue. Tell us about the red wine. Yeah, well, but that's just me as this yeah. sort of normal person in the world, if you see what I mean. And I, so I love to do those things. As middle school, it would be that my great desire was to play in a rock band. I was in a rock band. It was called Nervous. And um, I really wanted to be a heavy rock guitarist, essentially. And I also wanted to play cricket for a living. My great desire was to play cricket, which is this very strange game that people in America won't know about, um, or they'll maybe heard about it but don't understand it. But that's all right because people who play it don't understand it. <laughs> okay, that makes me feel better then. And, uh, th I know this is going to be a really hard question, but the first one that pops in your head, what's one book that changed your life? A Course in Miracles. Of course in Definitely. Miracles. Definitely. A Course in Miracles is a love letter written from the soul to the ego. It's my Desert Island book, and I thank God every day that I bumped into that book. Beautiful. And my last question, uh, really intense, really deep. If you could be any kind of animal, what would you be and why? Mm. I think my cats have a pretty good life, I can tell you that. Um, but no, I would go with... Um, oh, gosh. Oh, my goodness. This is tough. This is tough. Um, oh, well, no, it would have to be a pilot whale. Yeah, I did once look into the eyes of a pilot whale. We were swimming with whales and dolphins off the coast of Tenerife. And three or four pilot whales came up to me. We looked each other in the eyes. And in that moment, Jessica, I knew for a fact that they weren't really whales and I wasn't really a human. So you were aliens. We no, were. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We were. We were <laughs> Bad joke. Bad joke. <laughs> we were life just yes. expressing itself. And we were about to return to our alien spaceship, <laughs> which was just parked nearby. Right. No, but that that is beautiful, and I think we've we've all had just those those they are almost out of body experiences. They are. I mean, I mean, seriously, Jessica, when it was that moment of, you know, even the human story isn't everything that we are. Life loves us because we are first and foremost an expression of life, and we just happen to dress up as humans. But I think if we were to know that we are part of the whole thing, then us humans would actually experience the oneness so much more you know we would experience the love so much more and and then we would tell so so many more lovely stories you know we would become great storytellers who who told stories of love and not just of fear 
Well, you are leading the way. Thank you for all of your beautiful stories. I personally was touched by it. I know the listeners were touched as well. And I hope that everyone listening picks up your new book, Life Loves You. Uh, You wrote it with Louise Hay. It's fantastic. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. Jessica, this was a, a lovely way to get to know each other again a little bit more, which I've been enjoying. You know, we get a chance to do that at I Can Do It and things and this funny, funny world that we live in where we get to meet occasionally. Um, so I, I jumped at this chance and, and I look forward to getting to know you better along the way as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Me too.